0: China is battling a new and rapidly spreading respiratory virus.
1: We know it's a type of coronavirus. While there is an
0: increased
2: likelihood that cases may arise in this country, we are well prepared and well
3: equipped to deal with...
1: The coronavirus has hit the UK. Stay at least two metres away from people. It's not such a difficult thing, do it?
4: There's been a surge in coronavirus cases... For
3: the last five months or more, the world has been in the grip of the coronavirus known as COVID-19. All manner of live events have had to be cancelled, filming and recording suspended, including, you will have noticed, the talking newspaper and magazine. But although some production methods have changed in order to protect our volunteers, here we are, back again. As there are fewer of us in a position to produce the magazine at the moment, it may be a little less frequent than before. But at the same time, we're finding new ways to make the recordings, and I hope you won't notice too much of a difference. Having said all of that, just before we went into lockdown, we recorded one last magazine the old way, which we haven't been able to issue until now. And this is it. It was to have been the April edition, so some of the items are a little out of date, but still, we hope, entertaining. The editor was Stephen Buckley.
0: Music and poetry, readings and drama, celebrity interviews, quizzes and humour. Not wrapped in brown paper or tied up with strings, but these are a few of the favourite things that we have in this, the Worcester Talking Magazine. For this magazine, I've asked our readers to choose either prose or or pieces of poetry which have either made them think, evoked memories, or just made them laugh. We have with us Janet. Hello. Christine. Hello. Barney. Hello. And myself, Stephen. And the first piece I've chosen. It's from Wind in the Willows. I've chosen this because many years ago I worked for a children's theatre company, and we travelled round schools performing the stage version of Wind in the Willows – toad of toad hall i played toad and believe me you don't know what embarrassment is until you've appeared before a group of 10 year old children dressed as a toad (laughs) so this wind in the willows brings back lots of memories of touring round schools and it's read for us by barney
2: The mole had been working very hard all the morning, spring-cleaning his little home, first with brooms, then with dusters, then on ladders and steps and chairs, with a brush and a pail of whitewash, till he had dust in his throat and eyes and splashes of whitewash all over his black fur and an aching back and weary arms. Spring was moving in the air above and in the earth below and around him, penetrating even his dark and lowly little house with its spirit of divine discontent and longing. It was small wonder, then, that he suddenly flung down his brush on the floor, said, ''Bother!'' and ''Oh, blow!'' and also ''Hang-spring-cleaning!'' and bolted out of the house without even waiting to put on his coat. Something up above was calling him imperiously... And he made for the steep little tunnel which answered in his case to the graveled carriage drive owned by animals whose residences are nearer to the sun and air. So he scraped and scratched and scrabbled and scrooged. And then he scrooged again and scrabbled and scratched and scraped, working busily with his little paws and muttering to himself, Up we go, up we go, till at last, pop! His snout came out into the sunlight and he found himself rolling in the warm grass of a great meadow. This is fine, he said to himself, this is better than whitewashing. The sunshine struck hot on his fur, soft breezes caressed his heated brow, and out of the seclusion of the cellarage he'd lived in so long, the carol of happy birds fell on his dulled hearing, almost like a shout. Jumping off all his four legs at once, in the joy of living and the delight of spring without its cleaning, he pursued his way across the meadow till he reached the hedge on the further side. Hold up, said an elderly rabbit at the gap, sixpence for the privilege of passing by the private road. He was bowled over in an instant by the impatient and contemptuous mole, who trotted along the side of the hedge, chaffing the other rabbits as they peeped hurriedly from their holes to see what the row was about. Onion sauce, onion sauce, he remarked jeeringly, and was gone before they could think of a thoroughly satisfactory reply. Then they all started grumbling at each other, How stupid you are! Why didn't you tell him? Well, why didn't you say? You might have reminded him! And so on, in the usual way. But of course, it was then much too late, as is always the case. It all seemed too good to be true. Hither and thither through the meadows he rambled busily along the hedgerows, across the copses, finding everywhere birds building, flowers budding, leaves thrusting, everything happy and progressive and occupied. And instead of having an uneasy conscience pricking him and whispering, ''Whitewash!'' He somehow could only feel how jolly it was to be the only idle dog among all these busy citizens. After all, the best part of a holiday is perhaps not so much to be resting yourself as to see all the other fellows busy working. He thought his happiness was complete, when, as he meandered aimlessly along, suddenly he stood by the edge of a full-fed river. Never in his life had he seen a river before. This sleek, sinuous, full-bodied animal chasing and chuckling, gripping things with a gurgle and leaving them with a laugh to fling itself on fresh playmates that shook themselves free, and were caught and held again. All was a shake and a shiver, glints and gleams and sparkles, rustle and swirl, chatter and bubble. The Mole was bewitched, entranced, fascinated. By the side of the river he trotted as one trots when very small, by the side of a man who holds one spellbound by exciting stories. And when tired at last he sat on the bank, while the river still chattered on to him a babbling procession of the best stories in the world sent from the heart of the earth to be told at last to the insatiable sea. As he sat on the grass and looked across the river, a dark hole in the bank opposite, just above the water's edge, caught his eye, and dreamily he fell to considering what a nice, snug dwelling place it would make for an animal with few wants and fond of a bijou riverside residence above flood level and remote from noise and dust. As he gazed, something bright and small seemed to twinkle down in the heart of it, vanished, then twinkled once more like a tiny star. But it could hardly be a star in such an unlikely situation, and it was too glittering and small for a glowworm. Then, as he looked, it winked at him, and so declared itself to be an eye, and a small face began gradually to grow up round it, like a frame round a picture. A brown little face with whiskers, A grave, round face with the same twinkle in its eye that had first attracted his notice. Small, neat ears and thick, silky hair. It was the water rat. Then the two animals stood and regarded each other cautiously. ''Hello, Mole,'' said the water rat. ''Hello, Rat,'' said the Mole. ''Would you like to come over?'' inquired the rat presently. ''Oh, it's all very well to talk.'' said the mole rather pettishly, he being new to a river and riverside life and its ways. The rat said nothing, but stooped and unfastened a rope and hauled on it, then lightly stepped into a little boat which the mole had not observed. It was painted blue outside and white within, and was just the size for two animals. And the mole's heart went out to it at once, even though he did not yet fully understand its uses. The rat sculled smartly across and made fast. Then he held up his forepaw as the mole stepped gingerly down. "'Lean on that,' he said. "'Now then, step lively.' And the mole, to his surprise, found himself actually seated in the stern of a real boat. "'This has been a wonderful day,' said he, as the rat shoved off and took to the sculls again. "'Do you know I've never been in a boat before in all my life?' "'What?' cried the rat, open-mouthed. "'Never been in a—you never—well, I—what have you been doing, then?' "'Is it so nice as all that?' asked the Mole, shyly, "'though he was quite prepared to believe it as he leant back in his seat "'and surveyed the cushions, the oars, the rollocks and all the fascinating fittings "'and felt the boat sway lightly under him. "'Nice! It's the only thing!' said the water rat solemnly "'as he leant forward for his stroke.' Believe me, my young friend, there is nothing, absolutely nothing, half so much worth doing as simply messing about in boats.
0: Our next poem has been chosen by Janet.
1: The Rolling English Road is a very favourite of mine. Um, my father used to recite it, along with all sorts of peculiar um, demonstrations, and had us in fits of laughter, and whenever I hear it or read it, I think of him, because he's no longer with me. Before the Roman came to Rye, or out to Seven strode, the rolling English drunkard made the Rolling English Road. A reeling road, a rolling road, that rambles round the shire. And after him the parson ran, the sexton and the squire. A merry road, a mazy road, and such as we did tread the night we went to Birmingham by way of Beechy head. I knew no harm of Bonaparte and plenty of the squire, and for to fight the Frenchman I did not much desire but I did bash their bagonets because they came arrayed to straighten out the crooked road an English drunkard made, where you and I went down the lane with ale mugs in our hands the night we went to Glastonbury by way of Goodwin's sons. His sins they were forgiven him, or why do flowers run behind him and the hedges all strengthening in the sun? The wild thing went from left to right and knew not which was which but the wild rose was above him when they found him in the ditch. God pardon us, nor harden us, we did not see so clear the night we went to Bannockburn by way of Brighton Pier. My friends, we will not go again, or ape an ancient rage, or stretch the folly of our youth to be the shame of age. But walk with clearer eyes and ears this path that wandereth, and see undrugged in evening light the decent inn of death. For there is good news yet to hear and fine things to be seen before we go to paradise by way of Kensal Green.
0: Thanks very much, Janet. Sir Henry Newbolt isn't a poet who's particularly popular now, something of an imperialist writing in the 19th century. But he wrote one wonderful poem that I love. It's called Drake's Drum. I like this because I worked in Plymouth for some time at the Ho Theatre, just along from the famous Bowling Green where Drake announced that he would finish his game of bowls and still beat the Spaniards. It's called Drake's Drum because if you go to Buckfast in Devon, there's a house there that Drake lived in and in the house you'll see a drum. It's supposed to be Drake's Drum and the tradition is if ever England is in danger and you beat the drum... Drake will come back. Drake's drum.
2: Drake, he's in his hammock and a thousand miles away. Captain, asleep in there below. Slung atween the round shot, been numbered to Dios Bay and dreaming all the time of Plymouth Hoe. Yonder looms the island, yonder lie the ships with sailor lads a-dancing heel and toe and the shore lights flashin', and the night-tide dashin'. he sees it all so plainly as he saw it long ago. Drake, he was a Devon man, and ruled the Devon seas. Captain, art thou sleeping there below? Roving though his death fell, he went with heart at ease, a dreamin' all the time of Plymouth hoe. Take my drum to England, hang it by the shore, strike it when your powder's runnin' low. If the dawn's sight, Devon, I'll quit the port o' heaven, and drum them up the channel as we drum them long ago. Drake he's in his hammock till the great armadas come. Captain, art thou sleepin' there below? Slung between the round shot, listenin' for the drum and dreamin' all the time of Plymouth Hoe. Call him on the deep sea. Call him up the Sound. Call him when ye sail to meet the foe, where the old trades plyin' and the old flag flyin'. They shall find him wear and waken
0: as they found him long ago. This next poem is by Sue Warren, a lovely multi-talented friend of ours who died far too young last year. She could be wickedly funny, but was also a searcher for the essence of religious faith in its positive and uplifting aspects.
5: Invitation to Dance As God's minstrels start to play, hear their music come your way, touching deeply to your heart, calling you to be a part of God's own sweet celebration. So receive his invitation. You must not ignore the chance to partake in life's great dance. Life's great dance! God calls us all to our place in life's vast hall, and he bids us step in time to the melody sublime bright and joyful it may be, or strung in a minor key. In our every circumstance, God is calling us to dance. Dance, for as the minstrels play, it is God whom you obey. Dance to deep and rhythmic strains, through your laughter, joys and pains. Your steps aren't the same as mine, yet in God our moves combine to enrich us and enhance the great beauty of the dance, God is calling us to dance.
0: That was Bach's Prelude Number One, played specially for the magazine by Meredith McCracken. Our next item is also someone's favourite. John Plush is a great fan of Irish folk singer Cara Dillon, who came to Worcester last year to perform at Huntington Hall. J. P. told me what a pleasure it was to meet her, and that the resulting interview is one of his favourite things.
6: Oh. That ere I had, I've spent it.
3: a voice, like fine porcelain, Cara Dillon is an artist of international fame. She has a string of awards, including being a multiple winner of the BBC Two Folk Awards. And although she is sung on stage with numerous orchestras, she's equally at home with minimal, stripped-down backing, and at times singing completely unaccompanied. We've just heard a track called "The Parting Glass," a traditional folk song featured on her album "The Hill of Thieves," Cara. You come from a musical background.
4: I do indeed. I grew up in a small town in County Derry, a little town called Dungiven. And I suppose that where I grew up, uh, music, traditional music, folk music is a way of life. And uh, my grandmother uh, was a fantastic traditional singer. And my sister, um, Mary, is a brilliant traditional singer and was in a very well-known, successful band uh, called Janta. So, Yeah all of that has a great influence on you and, you know, how you come to be doing what you do, I suppose, when you're surrounded by music like that, quality music.
3: What was your first big success?
4: Um, I suppose maybe, like, there's there's lots of moments where great things happened, Um, things like, you know, getting to sing on uh, Disney movies and singing at the opening of the Ryder Cup. And, you know, I know that that kind of, put me in front of a different audience, so to speak. But I think for me, the biggest moment of success was my album, The Hill of Thieves, um, because I think it just put us on the map properly um, in folk music and it set us up to be able to continue doing what we do and why we're here today.
3: You work very closely with your pianist.
4: Mm -hmm. Um, Sam and I have been married now for about 15 years and um, we travel the world together, and it's uh, it's great. I, I don't know if I would do it without having Sam by my side now. It's just it's just works very very well.
3: Do you have any musical differences?
4: Not really. We're both very very similar in our musical taste and what we both you know want.
3: So from full orchestra to solo voice, which is your favourite setup?
4: Um, I like both. Um, obviously, you know, I'm I'm most comfortable singing by myself because that's how I started out singing and um, that's what traditional Irish singing is all about you know it, it's all about the voice and it's uh, using your voice as a as a tool for telling a story but also the melody and just like as the instrument and so I think probably most comfortable singing on my own because you uh, it's selfish but you just get a chance to you know just be free.
6: Oh, holy night The stars are brightly shining It is the night Of our dear Saviour's birth Long lay the world
4: Although being with orchestras, it's an incredible experience. It's very moving and they enhance the song and they, they bring different elements of the song to life. But, you know, there's a lot of pressure comes with um, standing in front of uh, a lot of people trying to get your cue right and and all that. So um, they're both ex- very, very different experiences. I was taught by some of the great legendary Irish traditional singers, a couple of them now who have passed away. A man called Paddy Tunney. And he would come to our town, he would teach lots of the youngsters the, the tradition, the old ways of learning the songs. And and. um Probably too young to really, truly appreciate at the time what I was um, being taught. But with a bit of hindsight, looking back, what a privilege to be taught by one of the greatest um, singers in the country.
3: And your sister Mary, did she also teach you a little
4: bit? She did. um, You know, I remember uh, clearly um, a particular day, I think I was probably about nine or ten. And I think I remember her hearing me singing and thinking, oh, this is great she she can sing the song and i'll do some harmonies and it'll help me work some stuff out and mary is a fantastic musician as well a lot of people don't know that but she plays guitar and harp and piano and so the two of us i remember her telling me no you just stick with the melody and i'll do harmonies and um i just was in awe of her you know she was doing everything magical you know she was um singing the songs and and singing with the band singing the kind of songs i wanted to sing and had the most amazing accompaniment. Um, and so, yeah, she was a massive influence. Do you see much of her now? Yeah, a lot. Um, I go home every couple of months and um, all my family live in the same town, so I always get to see them. It's lovely.
3: I'm talking of family, your 2006 tour, after the morning, was particularly memorable for you, I think.
4: Yes, it was indeed. Um, so, uh, in 2006, our twin boys, were born at 26 weeks, so they came very early. And just a day before I was to finish a tour and put my feet up for three months, and they made their entrance to the world. And um, so, you know, things changed for myself and Sam. We weren't actually sure how we would be able to make music work as well as we had before. You know, we had done lots of touring up until that point. And suddenly, you know, we just, we decided they come first, but, For that first year, because they had been premature and wondering if everything was going to be okay with them, I feel like after that, when I went out and um, began singing live again, I I had a whole different head on my shoulders. Now, it's a big part of their life, you know. They come to concerts, they've done um, a few songs with us on stage at different points. They've come and done our Christmas tour with us this year. They took a week off school to join us. And um it's great.
3: Now Cara, you suffer from type one diabetes, which has had a significant impact not only on your daily life, but also of course on your singing career. Yeah. Despite the hurdles that the condition has put in your way, you've not let it hold you back. What would you say to someone perhaps newly diagnosed with a potentially disabling condition?
4: Well, you know, being a type 1 diabetic now for 10 years, you know, I'd like to encourage people to not, you know, give up hope or, or get too down. And, I mean, I understand myself the, the highs and lows of your health being a challenge in some way or another. And, um, you know, everybody who has something knows the very real struggle. It's, um, it can be very tricky, but it shouldn't stop you having a go and making the most of what you've got. We've all got talents and all got gifts, and so please don't ever give up. There's so many great things to do every day. Just taking a breath of fresh air is a great thing. You write
3: a lot of your own material, Mm -hmm. and I get the impression that uh, music-making is a very personal experience for you.
4: Yes, um, it, it can be personal, and then sometimes, you know, I've written songs on different albums which haven't really but um there's a couple of songs which have been very personal there's one on um After the Morning which I wrote about my father passing away it's called October Winds and um and you know that was a real I think you know it's the first time I realized how um, important music is in healing and helping overcome hurdles in your life and um and so that was that was a great moment, and that came very easy.
6: And
4: and then on my most recent album, I wrote a song called "The Leaving Song," which is all based on um, a stories that my mother told me about different. people people that she knew and great uncles of hers who emigrated to America and what it might have been like how how I feel it might have been like to be the mother of a child who had to leave and never to return because back in those days it was a one way ticket and so yes I think you know a lot of the songs become there's a big part of yourself in it and, and maybe your dreams your hopes or just stuff that has been filtered down you know through the years that you've picked up on
6: hold out your hand love we'll figure this out you don't need to leave and But don't say goodbye, just take one last look at this northwestern sky.
3: Cara Dillon, thank you.
6: It's been
4: lovely talking to you, thanks.
3: John Plush
0: talking to one of his heroines, Cara Dillon. Well, you can't go wrong with Jerome K. Jerome and his most famous work, Three Men in a Boat. But, of course, the complete title is Three Men in a Boat, Not Forgetting the Dog. And it's given great pleasure to endless readers over the years. In this abstract, we meet Jerome's fictional pet dog, Montmorency. <laughs> To look at Montmorency, you would imagine that he was an angel sent upon the earth for some reason withheld from mankind in the shape of a small fox terrier. There is a sort of, oh, what a wicked world this is and how I wish I could do something to make it better and nobler expression about Montmorency that has been known to bring tears into the eyes of pious old ladies and gentlemen. When first he came to live at my expense, I never thought I should be able to get to keep him long. I used to sit down and look at him as he sat on the rug and looked up at me and think, oh, that dog will never live. He will be snatched up to the bright skies in a chariot. That is what will happen to him but when i had paid for about a dozen chickens that he had killed and had dragged him growling and kicking by the scruff of his neck out of a hundred and fourteen street fights and had a dead cat brought round for my inspection by an irate female who called me a murderer and had been summoned by a man next door, but one for having a ferocious dog at large that had kept him pinned up in his own tool shed, afraid to venture his nose outside the door for over two hours on a cold night, and had learned that the gardener, unknown to myself, had won thirty shillings by backing him to kill rats against time, then I began to think that maybe they'd let him remain on earth for a little bit longer after all. The only subject on which Montmorency and I have any serious difference of opinion is cats. I like cats. Montmorency does not. When I meet a cat, I say, "'Poor pussy!' and stoop down and tickle the side of its head, and the cat sticks up its tail in a rigid cast-iron manner, arches its back and wipes its nose up against my trousers, and all is gentleness and peace.' When Montmorency meets a cat, the whole street knows about it, and there is enough bad language wasted in ten seconds to last an ordinary respectable man all his life with care. Such is the nature of fox-terriers, and therefore I do not blame Montmorency for his tendency to row with cats. But he wished he had not given way to it one particular morning. We were making our way along the street when a cat darted out from one of the houses in front of us and began to trot across the road. Montmorency gave a cry of joy, the cry of a stern warrior who sees his enemy given over to his hands, the sort of cry Cromwell might have uttered when the Scots came down the hill and flew after his prey. His victim was a large black tom. I never saw a larger cat, nor a more disreputable-looking cat. It had lost half its tail, one of its ears, and a fairly appreciable proportion of its nose. It was a long, sinewy-looking animal. It had a calm, contented air about it. Montmorency went for that poor cat at the rate of twenty miles an hour. But the cat did not hurry up, did not seem to have grasped the idea that its life was in danger. It trotted quietly on until its would-be assassin was within a yard of it, and then it turned round and sat down in the middle of the road and looked at Montmorency with a gentle, inquiring expression that said, "'Yes, did you want me?' Montmorency does not lack pluck, but there was something about the look of that cat that might have chilled the heart of the boldest dog. He stopped abruptly... And look back at the tom. Neither spoke, but the conversation that one could imagine was clearly as follows The cat. Can I do anything for you? Montmorency. Uh, no, 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 thanks. The cat. Don't you mind speaking if you really want anything, you know? Montmorency backing down the high street. Oh, oh, no, not at all. <laughs> Certainly. Don't you trouble. <laughs> I'm afraid I've made a mistake. I, uh, I thought I knew you. Sorry I disturbed you. The cat. Not at all. Quite a pleasure. Sure you don't want anything now? Montmorency, still backing. Uh, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> Very kind of you. Good morning. The cat. Good morning. Then the cat rose and continued his trot. And Montmorency, fitting what he calls his tail carefully into its groove, came back to me and took up an unimportant position in the rear. To this day, if you say the word cats to Montmorency, he will visibly shrink and look up piteously at you as if to say, please don't. Well, there's one particular cat that Montmorency would be very wise to steer clear of. And that's T.S. Eliot's Macavity, the mystery cat. Christine.
5: Macavity's a mystery cat. He's called the hidden paw. for he's the master criminal who can defy the law. He's the bafflement of Scotland Yard, the flying squads despair. For when they reach the scene of crime, Macavity's not there macavity macavity there's no one like macavity he's broken every human law he breaks the law of gravity his powers of levitation would make a faker stare and when you reach the scene of crime macavity's not there you may seek him in the basement you may look up in the air but i tell you once and once again macavity's not there McCavity's a ginger cat he's very tall and thin You would know him if you saw him, for his eyes are sunken in, his brow is deeply lined with thought, his head is highly domed, his coat is dusty from neglect, his whiskers are uncombed. He sways his head from side to side with movements like a snake, and when you think he's half asleep, he's always wide awake. Macavity, Macavity, There's no one like Macavity, for he's a fiend in feline shape, a monster of depravity. You may meet him in a by-street, you may see him in the square, but when a crime's discovered, then Macavity's not there. He's outwardly respectable, they say he cheats at cards, and his footprints are not found in any file of Scotland Yard's. And when the larder's looted or the jewel case is rifled, or when the milk is missing or another peak's been stifled, or the greenhouse glass is broken and the trellis past repair, ah, there's the wonder of the thing. McCavity's not there. And when the Foreign Office find a treaty's gone astray, or the Admiralty lose some plans and drawings by the way, there may be a scrap of paper in the hall or on the stair. But it's useless to investigate. McCavity's not there. And when the loss has been disclosed, the Secret Service say, It must have been McCavity. But he's a mile away. You'll be sure to find him resting, or a licking of his thumbs, or engaged in doing complicated long division sums. McCavity, McCavity. There's no one like McCavity. There never was a cat of such deceitfulness and suavity. He always has an alibi, and one or two to spare, and whatever time the deed took place, Macavity wasn't there. And they say that all the cats whose wicked deeds are widely known, I might mention Mungo Jerry, I might mention Griddlebone, are nothing more than agents for the cat who all the time just controls their operations, the Napoleon of Crime. <music>
0: I like most of us will remember McCavity from Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical Cats. And now, as they say, for something completely different. We have a quiz. A quiz on English monarchs. We've got 12 questions for you. Number one. Which king would never have won Bake Off? Number two. Which king decided he didn't like to be beside the seaside when he got his feet wet? 3. Which king finished up with an eye full of arrow? 4. Which king spent less than one year in England during a ten year reign? 5. Which king lost his jewels in the wash? 6. Which king ...wanted to swap his kingdom for a horse. 7. Who was the first king who thought he needed a professional bodyguard? 8. Which king would never have made a marriage guidance counsellor? 9. Which king rather lost his head? 10. Which king died following an encounter... With a little gentleman in a velvet waistcoat. 11. Which queen wasn't a bundle of laughs? And lastly, which king preferred an American lady to his throne? 12 questions there, and we'll give you the answer shortly. And if you like to hear those questions again, just press your track back button.
1: Janet. I'm particularly pleased to read this one about a donkeys since uh, a little girl. I spent my summers on the Isle of Wight where my grandparents lived and one of the highlights of the holiday was to go to Carisbrook Castle to see the donkeys. They're my favourite animals, treadmilling and bringing up the water from the bottom of the well. When fishes flew and forests walked and figs grew upon thorn, Some moment when the moon was blood then surely I was born. With monstrous head and sickening cry and ears like errant wings the devil's walking parody on all four-footed things. The tattered outlaw of the earth of ancient crooked will starve, scourge, deride me I am dumb I keep my secret still. Fools! For I also had my hour, one far fierce hour and sweet. There was a shout about my ears and palms before my feet.
0: Well, we were hoping to see a donkey in the centre of Worcester on the 10th of April this year. Why? Because on Good Friday, that's the 10th of April, Worcester was set to stage its first passion play. An open-air play complete with Roman soldiers and baying crowds, fully staged in Cathedral Square and reenacting the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. And of course, Jesus was to arrive on the donkey. I'm talking about the wretched coronavirus, of course, to which so many public gatherings have fallen victim. Sadly, this includes the Worcester Passion Play, which will now have to go ahead at a later date. Nevertheless, before the postponement was announced, JP went down to a rehearsal in the city centre to find out from the director, Tim Crow, how the play eventually found its way here. My God! My God!
7: Why have you forsaken me? There's a group in Surrey called Wintershaw, who've been putting on a a passion play for quite a large number of years. More recently, in the last 10 years, that's been annually on Good Friday on Trafalgar Square. And uh, their vision was that maybe some other cities around the country could take their idea and um, reproduce it in their own cities. So um, this year there are 8 or 10 cities like Worcester, who are going to be putting on a a passion play in the centre of their own community. There's um, uh, one lady I know who who knows one of the Wintershaw team, Um, so she heard about it. There's another chap who's a businessman who also came to hear about it, and uh, so the two of them went down to meet the folks at Wintershaw and uh, really picked up the baton from there.
3: We're all reasonably aware of of this story and the the chief characters and and the key lines. Um, How close does this stick to the original?
7: Well, it's pretty faithful. Um, Obviously, when you dramatise, you have to change a bit. Um, And so there's some additional lines that don't occur in scripture, of course. Um, And uh, there are some times when you have to... um, Adjust so it doesn't sound too. The language doesn't sound too formal or archaic, but there's a lot of scripture quoted in the text, uh, so people will hear many of the familiar lines that either Jesus were the words that Jesus spoke from the cross, or in the upper room, or at various times even in his ministry.
0: People of Jerusalem, as an act of graciousness to the people. On this Feast of Passover, I, Caesar's governor in Judea, allow one prisoner to be set free. It was to have been Barabbas. Barabbas deserves to die. But it could instead be this new prisoner, Jesus of Nazareth, the healer.
6: Who
2: do you want me to release?
3: Was there much competition for the key roles?
7: Uh, no. <laughs> Since I only had about four men come to the original auditions, um, the answer is no. But um, we've managed to cover them well.
3: How many do you have in the cast?
7: I think we're over 60. <laughs> um, or certainly will be when we've plugged one or two little gaps because there are um, two or three disciples extra who we need to complete the team. Uh, they may not necessarily need to deliver lines, but they, um, in order to have a, a, a team of 12, we do need a few extras.
3: <laughs> From where do you recruit these people?
7: Well, we um, put a message out through churches mainly um, saying we were holding some auditions back at latter part of last year. That didn't produce enough men in particular. It did produce plenty of women because it's a male-dominated cast as it was a male-dominated society in those days. Um, And so since then um, I've sent emails around people I've uh, used in plays at the Swan Theatre in the past or uh, various people I know and said, would you be interested? And uh, got others to do the same. And uh, We've got some very, very strong performers at the centre of the cast as well as some volunteers who've not done anything before.
2: Jesus of Nazareth, you are to be taken to a hill outside the city walls to a place known as Golgotha, the place of the skull. There for the crime of treason against Caesar, you will be nailed to a cross and crucified until you are dead. Centurion.
3: So we're erecting crucifixes in Worcester High Street, amongst the shops and cafes. Is that an anomaly too far? Um,
7: Well, to actually do something that is, in our terms, really very barbaric, right in the centre of a uh, a modern city, um, is anomalous in some respects, of course. but uh, I think it's a, a graphic depiction of what took place and will grab people's attention for that reason. Um, and, uh, yes, yeah, so th- I mean, there are things about it that will be quite arresting in terms of attention and surprising as well.
3: How how does the performance of A, a Passion Play benefit the city of Worcester, do you think?
7: Well, that's a very interesting one. I mean... A, as a Christian, I pray that the um, the impact of who Jesus was would actually come across through the production, and that people, if they're Christians, will be uh, find their faith uh, strengthened, encouraged uh, uh, by by witnessing this in such a dramatic form. Um, for those who aren't Christians, uh, I pray that they will think about the fundamental questions of who Jesus was, and what was that all about, you know, um, and what it signifies. So I hope the message that is at the heart of the Christian message, actually, is something that uh, impacts people who perhaps consider themselves unbelievers.
6: Worcester
3: is a city that hosts people of many different beliefs. How do you see the relevance of this play to those of other faiths?
7: I think um, most people have some kind of worldview. Uh, The predominant worldview in our society is secular humanism. Um, And people live according to those beliefs that they consciously or unconsciously hold. Now, there are other people who have what we call religious worldviews, they happen to have a Hindu background or whatever Um, and uh, the challenge of what Jesus said which is quite distinctive it's distinctive in terms of uh, any uh, religions that you might want to name Um, it certainly challenges modern secularists and materialists to think about is there a spiritual dimension to life and uh, if so what is that all about and what does Jesus or did Jesus have to say about it
3: Tim Crow, thank you very much. My pleasure.
0: Father, into your hands I commit my spirit.
6: It is finished!
0: When John made that recording, of course, the future fate of the performance was unknown to anyone. But I still look forward to meeting the stage-struck donkey. Drama is at the heart of our next piece, which was chosen specially for us by Barney. What made you choose this, Barney?
2: Well, I'm an opera lover, and even people who aren't opera lovers love stories of operas that go wrong. Bouncing Tosca's (laughs) spring to mind. This piece reminds me of my time in Wexford. I didn't see this performance, but it's a great little place for an opera festival, very sociable, very welcoming, And this piece is very funny. In his 1981 book Conducted Tour, the journalist Bernard Levin chronicled a year of visiting arts festivals in Europe and Australia. Lucky man. The final chapter covers the Wexford Opera Festival in Southern Ireland. In it, Levin recalls a previous visit when he attended a performance of Gaspare Spontini's opera La Vestale, first performed in Paris in 1807. The Wexford performance, the last of that particular season, was to prove unforgettable, but for unusual and hilarious reasons. The set for Act One consisted of a platform laid over the stage, raised about a foot at the back and sloping evenly to the footlights. This was meant to represent the interior of a temple and had to look like marble. To achieve this, the director had covered the floor in formica, which was very slippery – To avoid the risk of performers taking a tumble, the production team had discovered that an ample sprinkling of lemon juice made the surface sufficiently sticky to provide a secure foothold. The story now takes a fork. Down one road lies the belief that the person whose duty it was to sprinkle the lemon juice, and had done so without fail throughout rehearsals and earlier performances, had simply forgotten. Down the other branch in the road is a much more attractive rumour that the theatre char lady, inspecting the premises in the afternoon, had been horrified to see the stage was covered in some spilt liquid and, inspired by professional pride, had given it a good scrub and polish all over. What happened began to happen very early. The hero strode onto the stage immediately after the curtain had gone up and instantly fell flat on his back. There was a murmur of sympathy and concern from the audience for his embarrassment and for the possibility that he might have been hurt. It was the last such sound to be heard and was soon to be replaced by sound of a very different nature. The hero got to his feet with considerable difficulty. Having slid some way down stage in falling, he strode upstage to where he should have been in the first place, singing throughout, for the music had not stopped. Striding upstage, however, was plainly far harder than he had anticipated. Every time he took a step, he slid downstage again, giving a perfect demonstration of what is known as marcher sur place, a graceful manoeuvre seen at its best by mime artists like Marcel Marceau. Facing such difficulty, he decided to stay where he was, singing bravely on and no doubt calculating that as the stage was brightly lit, the next character to enter would notice him and adjust his movements accordingly. That next character to enter was the hero's friend and confidant, who, seeing the hero further downstage than planned, decided to join him. In truth, he had little choice, for as soon as he stepped on stage, he began to slide downhill... He ended up colliding with his friend, not entirely inappropriate, as the opera called for them to embrace in friendly greeting. It did not, however, call for them to career further down stage and head straight for the orchestra pit while singing a duet. On the brink of ultimate disaster, they managed to stay on stage, and working their way along the edge like mountaineers seeking a route around an unbridgeable crevasse, gallantly began with infinite pain and by a form of progress most aptly described in the title of Lenin's famous pamphlet, Four Steps Forward, Three Steps Back, to climb back up the terrible hill. It quickly became clear that this hazardous ascent was not being made simply to retain dramatic credibility. It had a much more practical object. The only structure on the stage was a firmly embedded marble pillar, a yard or so high, on which burned a sacred flame. Both mountaineers had realised that it could provide a secure base for their future operations, as holding onto it for dear life would save them sliding back and possibly breaking their necks. They soon became aware that this was a task of Sisyphean proportions and the audience would have forgiven them for abandoning it. By this time, all 440 of us in the audience were laughing with such abandon that several of us felt that if this were to continue for a moment longer, we'd be in danger of doing ourselves a serious mischief. Little did we know that the fun was just beginning. Shortly after Mallory and Irvine had reached their goal, the chorus entered and immediately flung themselves into a very freely choreographed version of Les Patineurs, albeit to the wrong music. The heroine, the priestess of the temple, skated into the wings and kicked off her shoes. Then, finding on her return that this had hardly improved things, skated back into the wings and removed her tights as well. The singing had never stopped, and the chorus had come to the same conclusion as the hero and his friend, namely that the only way to stay upright and immobile was to hold on to the sacred pillar. The trouble was that it was the only pillar, and it was a small pillar – as the cars crowded around it, it seemed that there might be some unseemly brawling among those seeking a handhold, a foothold, even a bare fingerhold on this tiny island of security in the terrible sea of impermanence. Mercifully, instinctively understanding the principles of cooperation, they resolved things without bloodshed. Those nearest the pillar clutched it. Those next nearest clutched the clutchers. Those farther away still clutched those and so on, until, in a kind of daisy chain across the stage, everybody was accommodated. The condition of the audience was now one of fully extended hysteria, which was having the most extraordinary effect on the orchestra. The pit ran under the stage, and only one row of players, those nearest the audience and, of course, the conductor, could see what was happening. The rest realised that something out of the ordinary was going on, and would have been singularly dull of wit not to, for many members of the audience were now slumped hopelessly on the floor, weeping with helpless mirth. And although the orchestra could not see the stage, they could see the auditorium. Theologians tell us that the delights of the next world are eternal. Perhaps, but what is certain is that all earthly ones, alas, are temporary. And Julie, after giving us a glimpse of the more enduring joy of heaven... The entertainment came to an end when the first act did so, amid such cheering as I had never before heard in an opera house and can never hope to hear again. In the interval before Act Two, a member of the production staff walked back and forth across the stage, sprinkling it with the precious nectar, and our happiness was at an end. He who, after such happiness, would have demanded more would be greedy indeed." Most of us were content to know that for one crowded half-hour, we on honeydew had fed and drunk the milk of paradise.
0: In live theatre, of course, things are prone to go wrong. Ellen Terry was possibly the most famous English actress of the second half of the 19th century. She came from a theatrical family and appeared on stage from an early age. In her autobiography, she describes an accident that might be quite amusing in retrospect, but at the time was clearly something else. Don't
2: put your daughter on the stage, Mrs Worthington, don't put your daughter on the stage.
5: It is argued now that stage life is bad for a young child and children are not allowed by law to go on stage until they're ten years old, quite a mature age in my young days. I cannot discuss the whole question here and must content myself with saying that during my three years at the Princesses, I was a very strong, happy and healthy child. I was never out of the bill except during a run of A Midsummer Night's Dream when, through an unfortunate accident, I broke my toe. I was playing puck my second part on any stage and had come up through a trap at the end of the last act to give the final speech my sister Kate was playing Titania that night up I came but not quite up for the man shut the trap door too soon and caught my toe, I screamed Kate rushed to me and banged her foot on the stage but the man only closed the trap tighter mistaking the signal oh Katie, Katie I cried oh Nelly, Nelly, said poor Kate helplessly. "'Then Mrs Keene came rushing on "'and made them open the trap and release my poor foot. "'Finish the play, dear,' she whispered excitedly, "'and I'll double your salary.' "'There was Kate holding me up on one side "'and Mrs Keene on the other. "'Well, I did finish the play in a fashion. "'The text ran something like this. "'If we shadows have offended... "'Oh, Katie, Katie!' Think but this, and all is mended, oh my toe, that you have but slumbered here while these visions did appear. I can't, I can't, and this weak and idle theme, no more yielding but a dream, oh dear, oh dear. Gentles, do not reprehend, a big sob, if you pardon, we will mend, oh Mrs Keene. How I got through it, I don't know, but my salary was doubled. It had been 15 shillings and it was raised to 30. And Mr Skay, president of Bartholomew's Hospital, who chanced to be in a stall that very evening, came round behind the scenes and put my toe right. He remained my friend for life.
2: Don't put your daughter on the stage.
0: Having worked in the business, how well I recognized the hard-headed approach of Mrs Keane. Finish the play, dear, and I'll double your salary. By the way, the Kate mentioned is the grandmother of John Gilgood. This next piece is something of a curiosity. I came across it years ago on a, a record I bought. It's by a man called Carson Robeson. I think he was a recording star in America in the 30s. It's called Life Gets Teegers, Don't It? <music> Sun comes up and the sun goes down and the hands on the clock keep going around. I just get up and it's time to lay down. Life gets tedious, don't it? My shoes untied, but I don't care, cause I ain't reckoning on going nowhere. I'd have to brush my teeth and comb my hair and that's just wasted effort. Water in the well's getting lower and lower, can't take a bath for six months more. But I've heard it said, and it's true, I'm sure. Too much bathing will weaken ye. Old Grey Mule, he must be sick. I jabbed him in the rump with a pin on a stick. He humped his back, but he wouldn't kick. <laughs> Something cockeyed somewhere. Hound dogs howlin', so forlorn. Laziest dog that ever was born. He's howling cause he's settin' on a thorn. And just too tired to move over. The cow's gone dry and the hens won't lay. Fish quit biting last Saturday. My troubles keep piling up day by day and now I'm getting dandruff. The tin roof leaks and the chimney leans. And there's a hole in the seat of my old blue jeans and I've ate the last of the pork and beans. Just can't depend on nothing. There's a mouse gnawing at the pantry door. He's been at it for a month or more. When he gets through, he'll sure be sore. Of course, there ain't a darn thing in there. Well, it's debts and taxes and pains and woes and aches and misery and so it goes. And now I'm getting the cold in the nose. Life gets tasteless, don't it? (laughs) (laughs)
6: Looking
0: at me thinking, where on earth did that come from?
1: (laughs) That, That was... Made as a song, wasn't it? It was, oh, you know it. Well done, you remember it.
0: okay? well, if that was a very American piece, here's something quintessentially English. Stanley Holloway's Three Apes A Foot, Barney. I'll tell you an old-fashioned story that Grandfather used to relate, of a builder
2: and joining contractor whose name it was Sam Thwaite. In a shop on the banks of the Irwell... There Sam used to follow his trade, in a place you'll have heard of called Berry, you know where black puddings is made. One day Sam were filling a nottle with putty, when in through the door came an old man fair wreathed o' whiskers. Hallo, said the old fella. I'm Noah. Sam asked Noah what were his business, and told Chap went on to remark, that not liking the look of the weather, he was thinking of building an ark. He'd got all the wood for the bulwarks, and all t'other ship building junk, now he wanted some nice bird's-eye maple to panel the sides of his bunk. Now, maple was Sam's monopoly. That means it were all his to cut, and nobody else hadn't got none, so he asked Noah three apence a foot. A'penny too much, replied Noah. A penny a foot's more than mark. A penny a foot, and when rain comes, I'll give you a ride in me ark. But neither would budge in the bargain. The old thing were kind of a jam, so Sam put his tongue out at Noah and noah made long bacon at Sam. In wrath and ill-feeling they parted, not knowing when they'd meet again, and Sam had forgot all about it till one day it started to rain. It rained and it rained for a fortnight, it flooded the old countryside, it rained and it still kept on raining till the Irwell were fifty miles wide. The houses were soon under water, and folks to the roof had to climb. They said twas the rottenest summer as Berry had had for some time. The rain showed no sign of abating and water rose hour by hour till the only dry land were at Blackpool and that were on top of the tower. So Sam started swimming for Blackpool. It took him best part of a week. His clothes were wet through when he got there and his boots were beginning to leak. He stood to his watch chain in water on tower top just before dark when who should come sailing towards him but old Noah steering his ark. They stared at each other in silence till Ark were alongside old but. Then Noah said, "'What price yon maple?' Sam archered three apence a foot. Noah said, "'Nay, I'll make thee an offer, same as I did t'other day, "'a penny a foot and a free ride. Now come on, lad, what do they say?' Three apence a foot,' came the answer. So Noah, his sail, had to hoist and sail off again in a dudgeon while Sam stood determined but moist. So Noah cruised around flying his pigeons till fortieth day of the wet, and on his way home, passing Blackpool, he saw old Sam standing there yet. His chin just stuck out of the water, a comical figure he cut. Noah said, now what's the price of yon maple? And Sam answered, three apes a foot. He said, Noah, you'd best take me off or It's the last time I'll be hereabouts. And if water comes half an inch higher, I'll happen to get maple for an out. Three apes a foot it'll cost you. And as for me, Sam says, don't fret. Sky's took a turn since this morning. I think
0: it'll brighten up yet. We couldn't have a magazine like this without Shakespeare. And the first piece is one of his sonnets, Let Me Not
1: to the Marriage of True Minds. Janet. This one is quite um, poignant to me um, because we had a very good marriage but I lost my husband two and a half years ago. Ours was a love match. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds, or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark, that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark, whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken. Love's not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sigil's compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be error, and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved.
0: Shakespeare then gives us the ideal of love. But I suspect Pam Ayres may be more realistic in her poem, in which she describes her relationship with her somewhat bigoted husband poem entitled They Should Have Asked My Husband. Christine's going to read it and I should admit now that I am her husband.
5: You know this world is complicated, imperfect and oppressed and it's not hard to feel timid, apprehensive and depressed. It seems that all around us tides of questions ebb and flow and people want solutions but they don't know where to go. Opinions abound But who is wrong and who is right? People need a prophet, a diffuser of the light, someone they can turn to as the crises rage and swirl, someone with the remedy, the wisdom and the pearl. Well, they should have asked my husband, he'd have told them then and there, his thoughts on immigration, teenage mothers, Tony Blair, the future of the monarchy, house prices in the South, the wait for hip replacements, BSE and foot and mouth. Yes, they should have asked my husband... He can sort out any mess. He can rejuvenate the railways. He can cure the NHS. So any little niggle, anything you want to know, just run it past my husband, wind him up and let him go. Congestion on the motorways, free holidays for thugs, the damage to the ozone layer, refugees and drugs. These may defeat the brain of any politician bloke, but present it to my husband and he'll solve it at a stroke. He'll clarify the situation. He will make it crystal clear. You'll feel the glazing of your eyeballs and the bending of your ear. Corruption at the top. He's an authority on that. And the Mafia, Gaddafi and Yasser Arafat. Upon these areas, he brings his intellect to shine in a great compelling voice that's twice as loud as yours or mine. I often wonder what it must be like to be so strong, infallible, articulate, self-confident and wrong. When it comes to tolerance, he hasn't got a lot. Joyriders should be guillotined and muggers should be shot. The sound of his own voice becomes like music to his ears and he hasn't got an inkling that he's boring us to tears. My friends don't call so often. They have busy lives, I know. But it's not every day you want to hear a windbag suck and blow encyclopaedias on them we never have to call, why clutter up the bookshelf when my husband knows it all?
0: (laughs) Some of the references there are a little dated. I think Pam wrote the poem some 20 years ago. It's still very funny and she is, of course, a national treasure. Another treasure is Bill Bryson, American but now uh, a British citizen, written lots of travel books, of course, One of the funniest, I think, is a book about Australia called Down Under. Barney.
2: I followed a side road to a residential street and about halfway along came across the entrance to Tennyson Park. A wooden sign announced that what lay beyond was preserved bushland. Well, this seemed a splendid notion, an expanse of native bush in the heart of a great city. And I ventured in eagerly. However, it was not the semi-barren tract I would have expected, but a wooded glade with a sun-dappled path and tinkling brook. I guessed it would take about 20 minutes to cut through the park, and I was probably about halfway along when, from an indeterminate distance off to the right, there came the bark of a dog, tentative and experimental, as if to say, "'Who's that?' It wasn't very close or intimidating, but it was clearly the bark of a big dog.' Something in its timbre said, meat-eater, black, very big, not too many generations removed from wolf. Almost in the same instant, it was joined by the bark of a companion dog, also big, and this bark was decidedly less experimental. This bark said, red alert, trespasser on our territory. Within a minute, they had worked themselves up into a considerable frenzy. Nervously, I quickened my pace. Dogs don't like me. It's a simple law of the universe, like gravity. I'm not exaggerating when I say that I have never passed a dog that didn't act as if it thought I was about to help myself to its pedigree chum. Dogs that have not moved from the sofa in years will, at the sniff of me passing outside, rise in fury, and hurl themselves at shut windows. I've seen tiny dogs, no bigger than a fluffy slipper, jerk little old ladies off their feet and drag them over open ground in a quest to get at my blood and sinew. Every dog on the face of the earth wants me dead. And now here I was alone in an empty wood, which suddenly seemed very large and lonely, and two big and angry-sounding dogs had me in their sights. As I pushed on... Two things became increasingly apparent. I was definitely the target, and these dogs were not messing around. They were coming towards me at some speed. Now, the barking said, we're going to have you, boy. You're dead meat. You are small, pulpy pieces. Their barks were no longer tinged with lust and frenzy. They were statements of cold intent. "'We know where you are,' they said. "'You cannot make it to the edge of the woods. "'We will be with you shortly. "'Somebody call forensic.' Casting worried glances at the foliage, I began to trot and then to run. It was now time to consider what I would do if the dogs burst onto the path. The dogs now seemed to be moving parallel to me as if they couldn't find a way through, but at a distance of no more than 40 or 50 yards. They were furious!' "'My unease expanded, and I began to run a little faster. "'Somewhere in my brain was the thought, "'You're going to be the first person in history "'to die in the bush in the middle of a city, you poor, sad slob! "'All the rest was icy terror. "'And so I trotted along, wretched and whimpering, "'until I rounded a bend and found that the path abruptly terminated. "'I had evidently taken a wrong turn.' In any case, there was no way forward and nothing behind but a narrow path leading back in the direction of two surging streaks of malice. Glancing around in desperation, I saw with unconfined joy at the top of a twenty-foot rise a corner of Rotary clothesline. There was a civilised world, a home up there. Safety! I scrambled up the hill as fast as my plump little pins would carry me. The dogs were very close now. I stumbled on, snagging myself on thorns, straining with every molecule of my being not to become a headline that said ''Police find writer's torso, head still missing.'' At the top of the hill stood a brick wall perhaps six feet high. Grunting extravagantly, I hauled myself onto its flat summit and dropped down on the other side. The transformation was immediate, the relief sublime, I was back in the known world, in someone's much-loved back garden. There was a set of old swings that didn't look as if they'd been used in some years. flower beds, a lawn leading to a patio. The garden appeared to be fully enclosed by brick wall on three sides and a big, comfortable-looking house on the fourth, which I hadn't quite anticipated. I was trespassing, of course, but there wasn't any way I was going back into those woods – Part of the view was obscured by a shed or summerhouse. With luck there'd be a gate beyond and I could let myself out and slip back into the world undetected. My most immediate concern was that there might be a big mean dog in here as well. Wouldn't that be richly ironic? With this in mind I crept cautiously forward. Now let us change the point of view just for a moment. You are a pleasant middle-aged homemaker standing at the kitchen window of this tranquil suburban home going about your daily business. At this particular moment, filling a vase with water to hold some peonies you have just cut from the bed by the drawing room windows, you see a man drop over your back wall and begin to move in a low crouch across your back garden. Frozen with fear and a peculiar detached fascination, you are unable to move – but just stand watching as he advances stealthily across the property in a commando posture with short, frenzied dashes between covering objects until he is crouched beside a concrete urn at the edge of your patio, only about ten feet away. It's then that he notices you staring at him. ''Oh, hello,'' says the man cheerfully, straightening up and smiling in a way that he thinks looks sincere and ingratiating, but in fact merely suggests someone who's failed to take his medication.'' Almost at once, your thoughts go to a police mugshot you saw in the evening paper earlier in the week, pertaining, if you recall, to a breakout at an institution for the criminally insane at Wollongong. Sorry to crash in on you like this, the man is saying, but I was desperate. Did you hear all the racket? I thought they were going to kill me. He beams foolishly and waits for you to reply. But you say nothing because you are powerless to speak. Your eyes slide over to the open back door. If you both move for it now, you'd arrive together. All kinds of thoughts start to run through your head. ''I didn't actually see them,'' the man goes on, in a judicious but oddly pumped-up tone. ''But I know they were after me.'' He looks as if he'd been living rough. Smudges of dirt rim his face and one of his trouser legs is torn at the knee. ''They always go for me,'' he says, earnest now and puzzled. ''It's as if there's some kind of conspiracy to get me.'' I can be just walking down the street, you know, minding my own business, and suddenly from out of nowhere they just come for me. It's very unsettling. He shakes his head. Is your gate unlocked? You haven't been listening to any of this because your hand has been moving almost imperceptibly towards the drawer containing the steak knives. As the question dawns on you, you find yourself giving a small, tight, almost involuntary nod. I'll just let myself out then, sorry to have disturbed you. At the gate he pauses... Take it from me, he says. You don't ever want to go back in those woods alone. Something terrible could happen to you back there. I love your dauphiniums, by the way. He smiles in a way that freezes your marrow and says, well, bye then, and he's gone. Six weeks later, you put the house on the market.
0: Thank you very much, Barney. It really conjures up a wonderful picture of Bryson creeping across the poor woman's garden as she watches him in terror. The first time I read that, I laughed till I cried. I hope you enjoyed it too. Now, for the answer to our quiz on English monarchs. Which king would never have won Bake Off? Alfred the Great, of course. You'll remember he took refuge in a woman's house when he was hiding from his enemies. She asked him to look after the cakes, and he burnt them. Which king decided he didn't like to be beside the seaside when he got his feet wet? Canute, who was a very sensible king. His courtiers tried to flatter him, saying he could control anything. To show how wrong they were, legend has it that he stood by the seashore and ordered the tide to go back. And, of course, it didn't. Which king finished up with an eye full of harrow? Well, I suspect you got that one. King Harold, of course. Maybe a little more difficult. Which king spent less than one year in England during a ten-year reign? Richard the Lionheart. Too busy going off on his crusades. Which king lost his jewels in the wash? Well, that was Richard's wicked brother, John. And, of course, John is buried here in Worcester Cathedral. And the king who wanted to swap his kingdom for a horse, Richard III. And who was the first king who thought he needed a professional bodyguard? Well, that was Henry VII. And the bodyguard is still with us in the shape of the beefeaters at the tower. Which king would never have made a marriage guidance counsellor? Henry VIII, of course who managed to get through six wives. And the king who rather lost his head, Charles I, who died following an encounter with a little gentleman in a velvet waistcoat. William III, he was out riding in Windsor Park when his horse's foot caught in a molehill, he fell from the horse and died shortly afterwards. And the supporters of James II, whom he'd ousted, would drink a toast to that little mole, A toast to the little gentleman in the velvet waistcoat. And which queen wasn't a bundle of laughs? Well, Queen Victoria, of course, who was said to be not amused. In fact, I gather she had quite a sense of humour. And which king preferred an American lady to his throne? Edward VIII. Our next poem is by Wendy Cope. I chose this because it really makes me laugh. Listeners who experienced sight loss in more recent years will probably remember learning to read with the Janet and John books. Wendy Cope obviously did. Christine.
5: Uh, It's actually a a very clever poetic form. It's it's a villanelle. It's it's the same form as Dylan Thomas's Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night. Here is Peter. Here is Jane. They like fun. Jane has a big doll. Peter has a ball. Look, Jane, look. Look at the dog. See him run. Here is Mummy. She has baked a bun. Here is the milkman. He has come to call. Here is Peter. Here is Jane. They like fun. Go, Peter. Go, Jane. Come, milkman, come. The milkman likes mummy. She likes them all. Look, Jane, look. Look at the dog. See him run. Here are the curtains. They shut out the sun. Let us peep. On tiptoe, Jane, you are small. Here is Peter. Here is Jane. They like fun. I hear a car, Jane. The milkman looks glum. Here is Daddy in his car. Daddy is tall. Look, Jane, look. Look at the dog. See him run. Daddy looks very cross. Has he a gun? Up, milkman. Up, milkman. Over the wall. Here is Peter. Here is Jane. They like fun. Look, Jane, look. Look at the dog. See him run.
0: I think that's absolutely wonderful. Thanks very much, Christine. A very different poem now by E. Nesbitt, entitled
1: Trees. Janet. I chose this because it's the very first poem that I committed to memory. The silver birch is a dainty lady. She wears a satin gown. The elm tree makes the churchyard shady. She will not live in town. The English oak is a sturdy fellow. He gets his green coat late. The willow is smart in a suit of yellow, while brown the beech trees wait. Such a gay green gown God gives the larches, as green as he is good. The hazels hold up their arms for arches when spring rides through the wood. The chestnuts proud and the lilacs pretty. The poplars gentle and tall, but the plain trees kind to the poor dull city. I love him best of all.
0: Thank you, Janet. Now, Barney, to round off our programme, you've got one of your favourite things.
2: OK. I've chosen this piece from Love's Labour's Lost because it's simply one of the most beautiful examples of the English language written by Shakespeare, who was the greatest ever exponent of the English language, with the possible exception of P.G. Woodhouse. If you want to hear it at its best, I recommend that you watch Kenneth Branner's version of Love's Labour's Lost, in which he does this and and they cut in wonderful American songs of the thirties and at a very obvious point in this speech, he sings "Heaven, I'm in heaven, and my heart beats so that I can hardly speak." So this is Act Four, Scene Three of *Love's Labour's Lost*. Biron's speech: "Love, first learned in a lady's eyes, lives not alone, immured in the brain." But, with the motion of all elements, courses as swift as thought in every power and gives to every power a double power above their functions and their offices. It adds a precious seeing to the eye. A lover's eyes will gaze an eagle blind. A lover's ear will hear the lowest sound. Love's feeling is more soft and sensible than are the tender horns of cockled snails. Love's tongue proves dainty, Bacchus, gross in taste. For valour is not love a Hercules, still climbing trees and the Hesperides. Subtle as Sphinx, as sweet and musical, as bright Apollo's lute strung with his hair. And when love speaks, the voice of all the gods makes heaven drowsy with the harmony. Never does poet touch a pen to write until his ink were tempered with love's sighs, Oh, then his lines would ravish savage ears and plant in tyrants mild humility. From women's eyes this doctrine I derive. They sparkle still the right Promethean fire. They are the books, the arts, the academes that show, contain and nourish all the
0: world. We hope that our offerings this month have given as much pleasure to you as they have to us. If there are any of your favourite things you'd like us to read, please let us know why they are special to you and we'll do our best to accommodate them. Until then, it's goodbye from Christine... Goodbye. Janet... Goodbye. ...and Barney. Goodbye. Admin was by Carol Hartle and the producer was John Plush. Our final words come from another of my favourite writers, Dylan Thomas, and this is his... Evening Poem. Every morning when I wake, dear Lord, a little prayer I make. Oh, please to keep thy lovely eye on all poor creatures born to die. And every evening at sundown I ask a blessing on the town. For whether we last the night or no, I'm sure is always touch and go. We are not wholly bad or good, who live our lives under milkwood. And thou, I know, wilt we'll be the first to see our best side, not our worst. Oh, let us see another day. Bless us all this night, I pray. And to the sun we all will bow and say goodbye. But just for now. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>